the biography of Robert Murray McChain, from his conversion to the beginnings of his first diary. Robert was in the 18th year when his brother died, and if this was not the year of his new birth, at least it was the year when the first streaks of dawn appeared in his soul. From that day on, his friends observed a change. His poetry was pervaded with serious thought, and all his pursuits began to be followed out in another spirit. He engaged in the labors of a Sabbath school and began to seek God to his soul in a diligent reading of the Word and attendance on a faithful ministry. How important this period of his life appeared in his own view may be gathered from his allusions to it. When a year later he wrote in his diary, On this morning last year came the first overwhelming blow to my worldliness. How blessed to me thou, O God, only knowest who has made it so. Every year he marked his day as one to be remembered, and occasionally its recollection seems to have come in like a flood. In a letter to a friend, July 8, 1842, upon a manner entirely local, he concludes by a postscript, This day, eleven years ago, my holy brother David entered into his rest, aged 26, and on that same day, writing a note to one of his flock in Dundee, who had asked him to furnish a preface to a work printed in 1740, letters on spiritual subjects, he commends a book and adds, Pray for me, that I may be made holier and wiser, less like myself, and more like my heavenly master, that I may not regard my life as so be I may finish my course with joy. This day, eleven years ago, I lost my loved and loving brother and began to seek a brother who cannot die. It was to companions who could sympathize with his feelings that he unburdened himself. At that period, it was not common for inquiring souls to carry their burden to their pastor. A conventional reserve about these subjects prevailed even among active believers. It almost seemed as if they were ashamed of the Son of Man. This reserve appeared to him very sinful, and he felt it to be so great an evil that for years after that, he was careful to encourage anxious souls to converse with him freely. The nature of his experience, however, we have some means of knowing. The nature of his experience, however, we have some means of knowing. On one occasion, a few of us who had studied together were revealing the Lord's dealings with our souls and how he had brought us to himself. All at nearly the same time, though without any special instrumentality, he stated that there was nothing sudden in his case and that he was led to Christ through deep and abiding but not awful or distracting convictions. In this we see the Lord's sovereignty in bringing a soul to the Savior, the Holy Spirit invariably leads it to very deep consciousness of sin, but then he causes his consciousness of sin to be more distressing and intolerable to some than to others. But in one point does the experience of all believing sinners agree, and that was when their soul was presented as nothing but an abyss of sin. It was then that the grace of God to bring salvation appeared. The Holy Spirit carried on his work in the subject of this story by continuing to deepen in Robert the conviction of his ungodliness. 
and the pollution of his whole nature. And all his life long he viewed original sin, not as an excuse for his actual sins, but as an aggravation of them all. In this view, he was of the mind of David, taught by the unerring spirit of truth. At first light dawned slowly, so slowly, that for a considerable time he still relished an occasional plunge into scenes of revelry. Even after entering the Divinity Hall, he could be persuaded to indulge in lighter pursuits, at least during the two first years of his attendance. But it was with growing alarm, when hurried away by such worldly joys, I find him writing thus, September 14th, May there be a few such records as this in my biography. Then December 9th, a thorn in my side, much torment. As the unholiness of its pleasures became more apparent, he writes, March 10th, 1832, I hope never to play cards again. March 25th, never visit on a Sunday evening again. April 10th, absented myself from the dance, a braiding's ill to bear, but I must try to bear to the cross. Seems to be in reverence to the receding tide, which thus for a season repeatedly drew him back to the world, that on July 8th, 1836 he records this morning five years ago my dear brother David died in my heart for the first time knew true bereavement truly it was all well let me be dumb for thou didst it and it was good for me that I was afflicted I know not that any providence was ever more abused by man than that was by me and yet Lord what mountains you came over, none was ever more blessed to me. To us who can look at the results, it appears probable that the Lord permitted him thus to try many broken cisterns, and to taste the wormwood of many earthly streams, in order that later, by the side of the fountain of living waters, he might point to the world he had forever left and testify to the surpassing preciousness of what he had now found. Mr. Alexander Somerville, later minister of Anderson Church, Glasgow, was his familiar friend and companion in the wanton scenes of his youth, and since he too about this time tasted the powers of the world to come, they united their efforts for each other's welfare. They met together for the study of the Bible, and also dug into the Septuagint Greek and the Hebrew original. But more often still, they met for prayer and solemn converse, and carrying on all their studies in the same spirit, watched each other's steps in a narrow way. He thought he profited very much during this period by investigating the subject of election and the free grace of God. It was a reading of the sum of saving knowledge, generally appended to our confession of faith, that brought him to a clear understanding of the way of acceptance with God. Those who are acquainted with its admirable statements of truth will see how well fitted it was to direct an inquiring soul. I find him some years later recording, March 11th, 1834, read, in the sum of saving knowledge, the work which I think first of all wrought a saving change in me. 
how gladly would I renew the reading of it, if that change might be carried on to perfection. It will be observed that he never considered his soul saved, notwithstanding all his convictions and views of sin, until he really went into the holiest of all on the warrant of the Redeemer's work. For assuredly, a sinner is still under wrath until he has actually availed himself of the way to the Father opened up by Jesus. All his knowledge of his sinfulness and all his sad feeling of his own need and danger cannot place him one step further from the lake of fire. It is he that comes to Christ who is saved. Before this period, he had felt a tendency toward a ministry from his brother David, who used to speak of the ministry as the most blessed work on earth and often expressed the greatest delight in the hope that his younger brother might one day become a minister of Christ. And now with altered views, with an eye that could gaze on heaven and hell, and a heart that felt the love of a reconciled God, he sought to become a herald of salvation. He had begun to keep a record of his studies in a manner in which his time slipped away some months before his brother's death. For a considerable time, his record contained almost nothing but the bare incidents of the diary, and on Sabbath, the text of the sermons he had heard. There is one gleam of serious thought, but it is only one during that period. On the occasion of Dr. Andrew Thompson's funeral, he recorded the deep and universal grief that pervaded the town, and then subjoins, pleasing to see so much public feeling excited on the decease of so worthy a man. How much are the times changed within these eighteen centuries since the time when Joseph besought the body in secret, and when he and Nicodemus were the only ones found to bear the body to the tomb? It is in the end of the year that the evidences of a change appear. From that period and ever onward, his dry register of everyday incidents is varied with such passages as the following. November 12th, reading Henry Martin's memoirs. Would I could imitate him, giving up father, mother, country, house, health, life, all for Christ. And yet, what hinders? Lord, purify me and give me strength to dedicate myself my all to you. December 4th, reading Lay Richmond's Life. Deep penitence not unmixed with tears. I never before saw myself so vile, so useless, so poor, and above all so ungrateful. May these tears be the pledges of my self-dedication. There was frequently, during this period of his life, a sentence in Latin occurring like the above in the midst of other matter, apparently with a view of giving freer expression to his feelings regarding himself. December 9th, heard a street preacher, a foreign voice, seems really in earnest. He quoted a striking passage, To spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. From this he seems to derive his authority. Let me learn from this man to be in earnest for the truth, and to despise the scoffing of the world. December 18th, 
After spending an evening too lightly, he writes, My heart must break off from all these things. What right have I to steal and abuse my master's time? Redeem it. He is crying to me. December 25th. My mind not yet calmly fixed on the rock of ages. January 12th, 1832. My heart has no peace. Why? Sin lieth at my door. January 25th. A lovely day. 84 cases of cholera at Musselburgh. How it creeps near and near like a snake. Who will be the first victim here? Let thine everlasting arms be around us and we shall be safe. January 29th, Sabbath afternoon. Heard Mr. Bruce, then minister of the new North Church in Edinburgh. On Malachi 1 verses 1 to 6. It constitutes a very grave man of the charge against the unrenewed man that he has affection for his earthly parent and reverence for his earthly master, but none for God. Most Noble Discourse February 2nd, not a trait worth remembering, and yet these four and twenty hours must be accounted for. February 5th, Sabbath, in the afternoon, having heard the late Mr. Martin of St. George's, he writes on returning home. He says of him on another occasion, June 8th, 1834, a man greatly beloved of whom the world was not worthy. An apostolic man. His own calm, deep holiness resembled in many respects Mr. Martin's daily walk. Oh, how humble, yet how diligent. How lowly, yet how watchful. How prayerful night and day it becomes me to be when I see such men. Help, Father, Son, and Spirit. From this date, he seemed to have sat, along with his friend Mr. Somerville, almost entirely under Mr. Bruce's ministry. He took copious notes of his lectures and sermons which still remain among his papers. February 28th. Sober conversation. Fain would I turn to the most interesting of all subjects. Cowardly. Backwardness. For whosoever is ashamed of me and my words. And so on. March 6th. Wild wind and rain all day long. Hebrew class on the Psalms. New beauty in the original every time I read Dr. Welsh's lecture on Pliny's letter about the Christians of Bithynia. Professor Jameson on courts. Thomas Chalmers grappling with Hume's arguments. Evening notes and little else. Mind and body dull. This is a specimen of his record of daily study. March 20th. After a few sentences in Latin, concluding with, Leaning on a staff of my own devising, it betrayed me and broke under me. It was not your staff. Resolving to be a god, you showed me that I was but a man. By my own staff being broken, why may not I lay hold of yours? Read part of the life of Jonathan Edwards. How feeble does my spark of Christianity appear beside such a sun? But even his was a borrowed light.
and the same source is still open to enlighten me. April 8th, have found much rest in him who bore all our burdens for us. April 26th, tonight I venture to break the ice of unchristian silence. Why should not selfishness be buried beneath the Atlantic in mantras so sacred? May 6th, Saturday evening. This is the evening previous to the communion, and in prospect of again declaring himself the Lord's at his table, he enters into a brief review of his state. He had partaken of the ordinance in May of the year before for the first time, but he was then living at ease and did not see the solemn nature of the step he took. He now sits down and reviews the past. What a mass of corruption have I been! How great a portion of my life have I spent wholly without God in the world, given up to sense and the perishing things around me, naturally of a feeling and sentimental disposition, how much of my religion has been, and to this day is tinged with these colors of earth, restrained from open vice by educational views and the fear of man, how much ungodliness has reigned within me, how often has it broken through all restraints and come out in the shape of lust and anger, mad ambitions, and unhallowed words. Though my vice was always refined, yet how subtle and how awfully prevalent it was. How complete a test was the Sabbath spent in weariness, as much of it as was given to God's service. How I polluted it by my hypocrisies, my self-conceits, my worldly thoughts, and worldly friends. How formally and unheedingly the Bible was read. How little was read so little that even now I have not read all of it. How unboundedly was the wild impulse of the heart obeyed. How much more was the creature loved than the Creator. O great God, it is suffer me to live whilst I so dishonor thee. Thou knowest a whole, and it was thy hand alone that could awaken me from the death in which I was, and was contented to be. Gladly would I have escaped from the shepherd that sought me as I strayed, but he took me up in his arms and carried me back, and yet he took me not for anything that was in me. I was no more fit for his service than the Australian, and no more worthy to be called and chosen. Yet why should I doubt? Not that God is unwilling, not that he is unable of both, I am assured. But perhaps my old sins are too fearful, and my unbelief too glaring. Nay, I come to Christ, not although I am a sinner, but just because I am a sinner. Even the chief, he then adds, and though sentiment and constitutional enthusiasm may have a great effect on me, Still, I believe that my soul is in sincerity desirous and earnest about having all of its concerns at rest with God in Christ, that his kingdom occupies the most part of all my thoughts and even of my long-polluted affections. Not unto me, not unto me, be the shadow of praise or of merit ascribed, but let all glory be given to your most holy name, as surely as you made the mouth which I pray, so surely do you prompt every prayer of faith which I utter. 
You have made me all that I am and given me all that I have. Next day, after communicating he writes, I well remember when I was an enemy, and especially abhor this ordinance as binding me down. But if I be bound to Christ in heart, I shall not dread any bands that can draw me close to him. Evening. Much peace. Look back, my soul, and view the mind that belonged to you but twelve months ago. My soul, your place is in the dust. May 19th. Thought with more comfort than usual of being a witness for Jesus in a foreign land. June 4th. Walking with Mr. Somerville by Craiglaith, conversing on missions, if I am to go to the heathen to speak of the unsearchable riches of Christ. This one thing must be given me, to be out of the reach of the baneful influence of esteem or contempt. If worldly motives go with me, I shall never convert a soul, and shall lose my own in the labor. June 22nd. Variety of studies. Septuagint translation of Exodus and of Vulgate. I bought the works of Jonathan Edwards. Drawing, truly, there was nothing in me that should have induced him to choose me. I was but as the other brands upon whom the fire is already kindled, which shall burn forevermore, and as soon could the billet leap upon the hearth and become a green tree as my soul could have sprung to newness of life. June 25th, in reference to the office of the Holy Ministry, how apt are we to lose our hours in the vainest babblings, is to the world. How can this be with those chosen for the mighty office, fellow workers with God, heralds of His Son, evangelists, men set apart to the work, chosen out of the chosen, as it were the very pick of the flocks, who are to shine as the stars forever and ever. Alas, alas, my soul, where shall you appear? O Lord God, I am a little child, but you will send an angel with a live coal from off the altar and touch my unclean lips and put a tongue within my dry mouth so that I shall say with Isaiah, Here am I, send me. Then after reading a little of Jonathan Edwards' works, oh, that heart and understanding may grow together, like brother and sister, leaning on one another. June 27th, reading the life of David Brainerd, most wonderful man, what conflicts, what depressions, desertions, strength, advancement, victories within your torn bosom. I cannot express what I think when I think of you, tonight, more set upon missionary enterprise than ever. June 28th, oh for David Brainerd's humility, and sin loathing dispositions. June 30th, much carelessness, sin and sorrow, a wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of sin and death. Enter thou, my soul, into the rock, and hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord and the glory of its majesty. July 3rd. This last bit of root of worldliness that has so often betrayed me has this night so grossly 
that I cannot but regard it as God's chosen way to make me loathe and forsake it forever. I would vow, but it is much more like a weakly worm to pray. Sit in the dust, O oh my soul. I believe he was unable to keep his resolution. Only once in the end of this year was he again led back to revelry. But it was the last time. July 7th, Saturday, after finishing my usual studies, tried to fast a little with much prayer and earnest seeking of God's face, remembering what occurred this night last year, alluding to his brother's death. July 22nd, had this evening a more complete understanding of that self-emptying and abasement with which it is necessary to come to Christ. A denying of self, trampling it underfoot, a recognizing of the complete righteousness and justice of God that could do nothing else with us but condemn us utterly and thrust us down to the lowest hell, a feeling that even in hell we should rejoice in a sovereignty and say that all was rightly done. August 15th, little done, and as little suffered. Awfully important question, am I redeeming the time? August 18, heard of the death of James Somerville by fever, induced by cholera. Oh God, thy ways and thoughts are not as ours. He had preached his first sermon. I saw him last. On February 27th, July, at the college gate, shook hands and little thought it was to see him no more on earth. September 2nd, Sabbath evening, reading, too much engrossed and too little devotional. Preparation for a fall, warning, we may be too engrossed with the shell even of heavenly things. September 9th, Oh, for true unfeigned humility, I know I have cause to be humble, and yet I do not know one half of that cause. I know I am proud, and yet I do not know the half of that pride. September 30th, somewhat strained by loose Sabbath observance, best ways to be explicit and manly. November 1st, more abundant longings for the work of the ministry. Oh, that Christ would but count me faithful, that a dispensation of the gospel might be committed to me. And then he adds, Much peace. Peaceful because believing. December 2nd, 4. He used to spend much of the Sabbath evening in extending his notes of Mr. Bruce's sermons, but now determined to be brief with these for the sake of a more practical, meditative, resting, sabbatical evening.